0: To Luke's Gospel we turn, the second chapter, and uh, there I invite your attention with me. In the Lord's kind providence, we come to this history on this very weekend on which we celebrate the great event about which we're going to read in just a moment. It is definitely the earthy account of our Lord's birth in the Bible. It is a plain and artless telling of the events that surrounded the entrance of our Savior into the world as a human being. Yet no matter how many times we hear it, again, there's something uh, different and wonderful to be heard. And with expectancy, therefore, we go to uh, the Word to listen to God's voice. After first we pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your Spirit to open our hearts and our eyes now to receive wonderful things. From your law. Things that we've heard before, our Father, words that we have read many times, even just in the last few days. And so we especially pray that uh, He will do a great work and that we will also engage our hearts and minds now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph And the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned. Glorifying God and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. For the past 29 years, until financial problems hindered it from uh, being celebrated a 30th time and enjoying a 30th anniversary production this year, the Crystal Cathedral in California has celebrated the holiday with an outstanding production called The Glory of Christmas. Now, it must have been perhaps the most impressive Christmas pageant in all the world. Uh, it included live, uh, real livestock on stage, wise men. Arriving on trained camels and singing and dancing ballerinas and period costumes and live angels soaring 80 feet in the air, flying at speeds of up to 25 miles an hour. All of it was set to music recorded specifically for the Crystal Cathedral's pageant by the London Symphony. Orchestra. Spectators raved over glories, lights, and sounds and splendor. The real history of Christmas, however, is not nearly as glorious in one sense. Yet, in another, it is. Much more glorious than any production London Symphony Orchestra, notwithstanding, could ever capture and convey, no matter how well funded or carefully choreographed. Consider this morning with me the real glory of Christmas. It all started very ingloriously, actually. Luke tells us that the event that kicked it all off was a call for a census by Caesar Augustus. Verse 1 In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, Augustus, no doubt, uh, thought that this was a pretty uh, glorious thing. He tended to think of most things that he did as pretty glorious things, himself in general, a pretty glorious uh, person, ruler of the vast Roman Empire of his day. His given name was Octavian. He had consolidated the Roman Empire's power, having defeated Antony and Cleopatra at Actium. Octavian was so powerful that he achieved godlike status in the empire. He was hailed Savior of the whole world in an inscription at Halicarnassus. He was also the first Caesar to secure for himself the august title of Emperor. No doubt he thought very highly of his own power and considered it a great and glorious thing that he could snap his fingers in Rome and families thousands of miles away would instantly be compelled to rearrange their entire lives to travel long distances to be registered for the privilege of paying taxes, of rendering unto Caesar as we still speak of taxpaying to this very day. The historian Tacitus tells us that Octavian kept the grand totals by hand. Anyway, it was this call for an earthly, grasping, proud king's census, humanly speaking, that set the wheels into motion, or at least the donkey's legs, and which we imagine that the young pregnant mary great with child was jostled all the way from nazareth to bethlehem i say imagine because she may have made that trek on foot supporting the weight of the unborn savior in her belly with her arms like a sling all the way. 100 miles uh, may not seem like a very uh, long way to us today with our modern cars and so on, but try climbing on a donkey nine months pregnant or setting out on foot and making your way the better distance From here to Nashville, and not on the smooth shoulder of the Natcher Parkway either. You begin to get the idea, some of the idea maybe, just a little bit of the discomfort that this teen mother must have experienced. Then think what it must have meant to arrive in busy Bethlehem, only to find that no one was willing to receive them. In this hour, particularly, of her need into his home and that the inn, which wasn't exactly the Ritz-Carlton to begin with, probably a room shared by a bunch of uh, travelers, uh, maybe a set of rooms uh, over top of stables. I say even the, the, the inn was full. How ironic. How inglorious. The maker of the universe... The one who formed the vast cosmos comes to earth and can't even get a room. No room for the Savior or for his mother or his stepfather. The best shelter they can find is with the animals. We, we picture in our minds, and we do so on our coffee tables too, and in our front yards, a, a wooden barn. But early Christian tradition finds them in a cave, actually. Justin Martyr wrote in the second century that since Joseph could not find lodging in that village, he took up his quarters in a certain cave near the village. Uh, And while they were there, Mary brought forth the Christ and placed him in a manger. That uh, is not entirely unlikely, since animals we know were stabled in caves, around Bethlehem, and we know that it was with the animals that uh, Mary gave birth because she laid Jesus in a feed trough, maybe made of wood, uh, quite possibly just just carved out of the ground. Now, uh, think about that for a minute. You who were born in a sterile hometown hospital like I or in the warmth of your mother's bed. Jesus came into the world in a town strange to his mother, in the place where animals were tied and made their messes. Kent Hughes says that if we imagine that it was into a freshly swept county fair stable that Jesus was born, we missed the whole point. It was wretched, scandalous. There was sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reached up to the heavens for help. The earth was cold and hard. The smell Earth was mixed into a wretched bouquet with the stench of manure and acrid straw. Trembling carpenter's hands, clumsy with fear, grasped God's son, slippery with blood the baby's tiny limbs waving helplessly as if falling through space, his face grimacing as he gasped the cold and his cry pierced the night. We love to sing Silent Night, but Andrew Peterson in his song Labor of Love reminds us that it was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. You could hear a woman cry in the alleyways that night on the streets of David's town. And the stable was not clean, and the cobblestones were cold, and little Mary, full of grace, with tears upon her face, had no mother's hand to hold. After she had him wrapped in scraps of cloth that she had torn, swallowed him like a little mummy and holds him, praying, pleading that he will live through the night, company arrives. Not an an envoy from Caesar Augustus with royal fanfare, decked in royal attire to welcome his own and the world's sovereign. Not even a delegation from the fathers of the village of Bethlehem to deliver an honorary key to the city, but a dirty, smelly band of men who don't smell any better not one bit better than the stall they've come to visit shepherds yuck the low lives of that culture perpetually unclean religiously speaking because of the nature of their work, untrustworthy by reputation, known for their uncanny ability to confuse what is mine with what is thine. They were the despised, they were the distrusted caste, or rather outcast, of their society. You know Joseph's manly and paternal instinct upon Spotting them, receiving them, must have been to hide what little they had brought with them and to stand guard over his wife, over his betrothed, and the child. His hand tightened its grip on his staff when he saw them coming. We've cleaned them up, these shepherds, and made them very sterile fellows and even an admirable lot." They were anything but. If you were the first to read Luke's account, if you had been the first to read this gospel and reach verse 8, where Luke says there were shepherds in the same region keeping watch over their flocks by night, your instant response would have been to say, So what? Who cares? Now, where is the glory in that? Where do you see the glory of Christmas? In blood-matted straw and a feed trough in a cave outside of nowhere, some jerkwater village on the unknown fridges of the Roman Empire. Where is the splendor? In a group of gawking, smelly shepherds now intruding on the makeshift maternity ward. Well, you have to look hard at first, but it's there. You have to look with the eyes of your soul that is faith to see it. First, there is the hidden glory of God working, orchestrating, governing. Directing all these things according to his own sovereign will. Octavian, Caesar Augustus, flexes some muscle in the throne in Rome, and the families of the empire are thrown into commotion, lives are put on hold while everyone returns to his hometown. But Caesar, great, powerful, mighty Caesar, turns out to be A mere instrument, a tool in the hand of God for the accomplishment of his divine purpose. His whim is God's wisdom. Some 700 years before, a prophet by the name of Micah had prophesied the day when salvation would appear in Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. All of this history, like all world history, like the history that is taking place this very second all rulers, all kingdoms, all powers, all events, calamitous and comforting, malevolent and benevolent, woeful and wonderful are part of the great tapestry of God's perfect plan being woven before us even this day. I want you to see That glory, dear flock, because your own history and your own lives today are part of that great tapestry, that same grand design of God's. God is accomplishing his glory in your life today, just as surely as he was bringing about his own glory through Caesar and Joseph, and Mary, and the shepherds. He's on the same throne today, still ruling all things for your good and for his glory. You may not see that glory today. I I admit that to you. It's muted to your view, even hidden. You don't see it. Joseph, you know, he didn't see it either. Through squinting eyes, straining by some ancient little lamplight to cut the umbilical cord, he didn't see it. He didn't see it either when the summons came to pack up his fiance and head to Bethlehem in the first place. But it's precisely, you see, precisely in the daily round of things, in the day-to-day events, in the very small events of your life, the flat tire, the sudden change of events in your life, that phone call, that traffic jam, as well as in the great seismic shifts in world power, that God is working out His purposes. This little family, swept up in the tide of Rome's whim, bears a little child, unknown, unrecognized by the world, Who in due time would turn the world upside down and be Rome's own demise, too? What Mary prophesied in her Magnificat that we read a few weeks ago has Now begun to come true. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Phil Riken puts it this way. He says that God was taking Caesar's pawns and moving them to checkmate so that the real Savior of the world would stand alone as the king of kings. The irony is not lost on David Goodling either who writes this. For Augustus the taking of censuses was one of the ways he employed to get control over the various parts of his empire. Uh, but and here's the irony of the thing in the process As he thought of tightening his grip on his huge empire, he so organized things that Jesus, son of Mary, son of David, son of God, destined to sit on the throne of Israel and of the world, was born in the city of David, his royal ancestor. This was meant to be a great show of Caesar's power, and these events instead proved to be the demonstration of the supremacy of God's sovereignty. That, my brothers and sisters, is is the glory of God that boils just under the surface of this history, and that continues to do the same today. You read in the paper last week, perhaps, that According to the Pew Forum's report to the European Parliament, Christians face some sort of harassment in as many as two-thirds of all countries, some 133 states. There are many countries in the world today where it is a capital offense to name the name of Christ. On this Christmas weekend, as I speak, a mother of five is sitting in a Pakistan jail. Asia Bibi is awaiting execution on charges of blasphemy because she tried to bring some water to... Muslim neighbor women who are working in the field. Now join to Asia's face the unnamed faces of men and women, thousands of them right now in prison for their faith in Christ. Many of them are being tortured this very minute. It's hard to see the glory of God in that. But if you look closely, you can see it. You can see that in precisely the places where Christianity is persecuted the most, take China, for example, the truth of Jesus Christ is also spreading the most rapidly being received the most genuinely and deeply and the church is growing looking at Asia Beebe's picture looking with the eyes of faith you see a saint whose splendor in glory could you behold it with the eyes of your body today, the splendor that will be hers one day, it would be too much for you to bear to see with your physical eyes. For now, much of God's glory remains hidden from our view second, there is the glory of God that is plainly to be seen in this history. And you've been thinking this too. I know you have. I've said nothing of the angels, have I? There is the glory of God on display indeed. The light of their appearance, brilliant and blinding, to say nothing of, of, the, uh, of terrifying to the shepherds there in the, uh, in the uh, field with their flocks that night, was nothing else but the glory of God reflected on their wings. They were carrying on them the residual glory from having just been moments before in the presence of God. That glory of God that filled that night sky where they were keeping their sheep. But it is as much, even more in the thunderous, angelic cry in military cadence that the glory of God is known. Glory to God on the highest. Can you hear them chanting it out? Samuel Davis, the stalwart 18th century minister and educator at the College of New Jersey, later named Princeton University, wondered in his Christmas sermon over that opening salvo, This deservedly leads the song he preached. It is of more importance in itself in the estimate of the angels and of all competent judges than even the salvation of men. And the first and chief cause of joy and praise from the birth of a Savior is that he shall bring glory to God. Through him, as a proper medium, the divine perfections shall shine forth with a new augmented splendor. Through him sinners shall be saved in a way that will advance the honor of the divine perfections and government. Or if any of them perish, their punishment will more illustriously display the glory of their offended sovereign. The wisdom, grace, and mercy of God are glorified in the development of this plan of redemption and making millions of miserable creatures happy forever. His power is glorified in carrying this plan into execution in spite of all opposition. His justice is glorified in the atonement And satisfaction made for the sins of men by an incarnate deity, and in the righteous and aggravated punishment executed upon those that obstinately reject this divine Savior and therefore perish without the least shadow of excuse. Oh, what wonders! He continues, does Jehovah perform in prosecution of this method of salvation? What wonders of pardoning mercy and sanctifying grace? What miracles of glory and blessedness does he form out of the dust and the polluted fragments of human nature? What monuments of his own glorious perfections does he erect through all the extensive regions of heaven? From these wonderful works of his, the glory of his own name breaks forth upon the world of angels and men in one bright, unclouded day, which shall never be obscured by night, but grow more and more illustrious through the endless ages of eternity. Reverend Davis was right, of course. God's glory continues to spread every day with every Christmas that comes and goes as this one has. For another year, God has moved, has directed all things, all powers, all men, all hearts. And in every continent, the gospel has gone into more places. The light has penetrated more of the darkness. More hearts in every place in the world in the past year have been touched by the gospel, have been brought into the kingdom than ever before. And will continue that way into the next year. The modern day Caesars of the world, whether they know it or not, whether they're willing to be so or not, whether wittingly or unwittingly, are simply serving the purposes of God, are fulfilling His perfect plan. In all of history, including your little, obscure, unknown life, and mine is marching inexorably toward a day when, with your physical eyes, the eyes of your body, now I'm talking about perfected and made imperishable, you will see the glory. Of God in such fullness and splendor as will render the stunning light of those angels that filled the shepherd's sky outside of Bethlehem to a mere glimmer by comparison.